Corinthians 13, this great chapter on, on love, this chapter that tells us that if we don't get love, then nothing else that we get matters. If we don't do love, then nothing else that we do matters. If we don't learn to love, then nothing else that we learn will matter. It's an important concept, an important um, passage of Scripture, certainly. Paul has been laboring through 1 Corinthians to emphasize the fact that we are designed to get along. We are designed to function in connection with others. And so love is what lubricates that connection, is what allows that, that interdependence that causes us to meet each other's needs, to serve each other, to receive from each other. No one is satisfied in life who is not connected to others. And here in chapter 13, he just emphasizes how that is to happen. Now, mostly he doesn't define love, as I said last week, because really I think for the most part we kind of know what love is. And if we have been become Christians and given our hearts to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is within us and God's love is in us. I don't think there are people who are Christians who have love and other people who are Christians who don't have love. I think we all have that love. But what he's talking about here is how to communicate that love, how to express it, how that love can come across. There are some people who come across as very loving, some people who come across like they don't care. Some of the people who come across like they don't care, if you dig down deep enough, you find out they care a lot, but they haven't learned or something has held them back from being able to express that love, and as a result, they come across cold and unfeeling and uncaring. It's really not the case with any Christian, certainly. But what Paul shows here is the kind of behavior, for the most part, that can quench that love, that can cause that love to not function or to not be visible or to not be enjoyed and experienced enough. So we've, as we're going through this chapter, we've come to verse 5 this morning. And there are four ways here, basically, to kill love. Four things that, if you do them, love is not going to be flowing through your lives. I've entitled the message, How to Be Alone, because if we don't learn to express love, we end up with not a lot of company. If you do the four things that he's warning us against in this verse, you will certainly have a lot of time on your hands. <laughs> Let's read verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. So love, when it's working the way that it should, doesn't do these things. The first one, it doesn't um, behave rudely. The word there for rude is a word that, with a negative attached to it, is a word that refers to something that fits or works or is applicable. Um, the Greek source word of this is the same word schema, or in the Greek they have schematizo, from which we get our word scheme or schematic. A schematic is a plan that's drawn out of how 
several different components can work together to bring about a desired result. Every electronic device started out as a schematic, a plan, a, a way that's drawn out in which if each component does what they're supposed to do, here is the result. It will play music or it will show a picture or it will do heat a room or it'll do whatever it is that it's supposed to do. And this word for rude ultimately is telling us act according to the plan. Fit in. Find your place in the schematic of life and relationships. Rudeness is when you just decide, I don't care what anyone else thinks, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be oblivious to how it affects others, going to be oblivious to their uh, opinions. Now, rudeness is something that, in some ways, we can almost glorify it. You hear people bragging almost as if it's a good thing by saying, you know what, I don't care what anybody else thinks, I just do my own thing. I just do what I feel like doing, I speak my mind, I say what I want to say, I do what I want to do. You can do that, you can even feel good about yourself if you do that, but chances are if you do that, there's not going to be a lot of people around to listen to you. There aren't going to be people who really want to hang out with you or be close to you. Because it's really unpleasant to be in relationship with rude people, with people who just do whatever it is that they feel like doing at the time. Now, what Paul is getting at here is if you love people, you need to be considerate of them. You need to consider how they perceive things and what makes things comfortable for them. There may be things that you're comfortable with that most people around you aren't. But in order to function in relationship, you have to make some adjustments to who you are as to how you're going to fit in with others. There might be certain language that you feel completely justified in using that sort of language. And you can defend it biblically. Oh, there are very crude things in the Bible sometimes. And sometimes you just have to use this kind of language. And I'm not going to argue with you about that, you know. And yet at the same time, if you use language that's offensive, if you use language that's rude, pretty soon you're going to be communicating with yourself because other people find it very unpleasant when you communicate in a way that isn't considerate of what's offensive to them, what may bother them. In the same way, we kind of dress ourselves up when we're going to be with other people. You don't have to. Our church doesn't have a dress code. There's nothing in the Bible that says, you know, if you want to come to church in your bathing suit, you know, that you couldn't do that. You could do it. And you don't really have to comb your hair before you come to church. I've been able to beat that one. But, you know, if you wanted to, I suppose you could come to church just in a robe and slippers. And nobody would be able to show you chapter and verse where it's wrong. But if you did that, you'd make people very uncomfortable. You would cause people, probably your family especially, to go, you're embarrassing us. So we have a certain amount of adjustments that we make to accommodate what's just plain good manners, good behavior. And we try to adjust to that. That's, that's a good way to communicate love. Now, Again, it doesn't mean that love isn't there 
if you act rudely, if you act inconsiderately. All it means is the ultimate result of it is people aren't going to feel that love. And again, they aren't going to want to be close to you. There's, you know, something very natural about bad breath, depending on what you eat. You know, if you eat, I mean, to me, most really good food will give you bad breath. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with bad breath. But if you, if you insist on not, you know, brushing your teeth and using mouthwash and stuff, it'll just push people away from you. They won't want to get close to you. Um, I, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't say this, but... <laughs> and whenever I say that, I wonder, why don't I take my own advice? <laughs> but sometimes after church, when Pastor Chuck would greet people after church, people would offer immense... And he says, I deliberately don't eat mints after church because there's a long line of people who want to talk to me, and I find that they'll get to the point and move on a lot quicker if I don't use breath mints. So I'll still use them sometimes because I don't have that problem with so many people wanting to see me. But ultimately, the effect will be, there's nothing wrong with having bad breath, but you go, there are certain adjustments that I need to make to get along with other people. Some of this, when, you're, when you have friends and family, there are things that you need to do out of consideration for them. For instance, in terms of being healthy, in terms of me eating as I should and getting exercise and things like that, I don't care that much for myself. I really am way past the point of admiring myself in the mirror, you know, flexing, and it's just, I'm not doing that. And so for me, when I get myself up in the morning, the last thing I feel like doing is exercising and then eating right. But on the, because the worst thing that can happen to me is I die. I go to heaven, I don't mind that at all. If I, you know, the idea of a shorter life for me doesn't bother me one bit. I could go to be with the Lord today and I'm better off. However, I have a family. I have a wife who loves me and I have kids and I do want to be there for them. It would be very unfair for me to not take care of myself and die earlier as a result and go, well, I don't care, I'm in heaven. So there are things that I do because I know that it matters to, to them. And I know that I want to be there for them. And so when I take care of myself, when I go to the doctor, when I work out, when I watch what I eat, it's not really for me. It's out of consideration for people who are depending on me and who, who want me, for some reason, to be here for a longer period of time. And again, it would be rude to not consider that. It would be smart to think about that. The ultimate productivity that I have to offer for others. I need to take care of myself. Somebody emailed me a great cartoon. I think it was yesterday. And it showed a guy, uh, looked like a real high-powered business guy, overweight, in the doctor's office. And the doctor was talking to him, and he had a, had a little notepad. And the doctor said to the, to the man, he said, so which would fit into your busy schedule better? One hour a day of exercise or 24 hours a day of being dead. <laughs> but see, 
that's a part of the idea. It's like, okay, what I want to be is more than just what works for me. It's behaving myself in such a way that benefits others, that, that shows my consideration for others. And so I tailor some of my behavior. I tailor some of my conduct in order to not be rude and offensive, in order to try to be presentable and helpful and encouraging. Because love, when it's expressed, the kind of love that causes people to want to be with you is a love that considers what works for them and not just what works for you. Now he goes on to say not only does it not behave rudely, but he says it does not seek its own. Now, all of these things that he talks about in here, it's hard to escape the, the fact that, you know, ultimately what love is when it's expressed is the opposite of selfishness and pride. It's all about considering others rather than yourself. So now, though, he gets to kind of the root of selfishness, as he says, love doesn't seek its own. The word there for seek is a word that it's used a lot in the Bible for seek, often for worship, for seeking after God. But it's a word that refers to what are you really looking for? What is your agenda? What are your goals? And he says, if you're loving your personal agenda your list of goals, the things that you want to accomplish, where you want to end up, it's not yourself. It's not something for you. One of the sad ironies of life is that if you put you in the center, you'll never find fulfillment. You'll never find the satisfaction that you can ultimately find. You can't be the object of your life and have it work well. Jesus said it this way. He said, if you want to find your life, lose it. But whoever loses his life will find it. The word there for life is the Greek word suke. It's your psyche. It's who you really are. And the more you try to focus on yourself, the more you try to understand yourself, the more you try to look out for number one, amazingly, you'll never be really satisfied. You're never going to be happy. You're never going to find what you really want in life because what we all really want in life is to be a part of something, to be connected to others, to feel that closeness and intimacy. And putting yourself at the center of your own agenda is the quickest way there is to finding yourself with no company, to finding yourself in a place where it's like, what happened to all my relationships? Well, here's what happened. What you care about most is you. What other people care about most is not you. And it just doesn't work for it to be about you. And so he says it in a lot of different ways here. But here he's saying, hey, if you want to love, you're going to have to get past that idea that your goal in life is self-fulfillment that your goal in life is self-preservation, that your goal in life is self-glorification. Looking for it doesn't give it to you anyway. And that's the irony again. If you seek to value others, if you seek to put them first, 
you'll discover that that was what was best for you all along. It's through caring about others that we gain our fulfillment, but it's through having us be our agenda that we drive people away. It's, it's just one of the rules of life. Someone has said, I think it might have been Dale Carnegie who came up with this first, but I'm not sure, but he, but he said, if you'll make the goal of your life to help other people get what they need, then you will always have everything that you need. And it's one of the great rules of business. If you can find something to do in business whereby you love really helping others and what you're doing is really fulfilling a service for others, you're going to find a huge amount of satisfaction that comes from that. But there are a whole lot of people who try to do business by finding a way that helps them the most. Those kind of businesses generally aren't successful, at least not for very long. And so in our relationships, it's the same thing. Jesus said, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's the way to become my disciple. That's the way to follow in my footsteps. And he did it himself. Paul talked about it in Philippians, that we need to have the same mind in ourselves as was in Jesus, the mind that esteems others higher than ourselves, the mind that says, my goal in life is to help as many people as I can. My goal in life is to serve in whatever way I possibly can, to see God glorified as I pour myself out. That's what I want to do. Now, and it's important for us also to not do that so that we get the glory. If you're doing things for others because you want it to pay off for you, often that short circuits. That happens when people you know, will donate money for a building so that you'll name the building after them. It's, there's something really empty, and you end up, that's your reward. But it's believing that God will reward us when we are selfless. And when we give and help others, just the satisfaction that we get of making a difference, it does, it does amazing things in terms of connecting us with others as well. I'd suggest to you that probably most of the best friends that you've ever made in life was when you were serving God alongside someone, doing something for others, doing something meaningful. That's where all the best relationships are made. And that's why people who are self-centered and selfish don't have a lot of friends, because no one else shares that agenda. And, and so Paul says, if you want love to be flowing through your life, if you want your life to really ultimately be what, it, what matters and what makes a difference... Again, in the beginning of the chapter, he said, it's quite likely that you can be really giving and really smart and really communicative and pour yourself out for others and do it for no reason at all. And the way you do that is to not have love. And now he says, a part of wasting your life is having your life goal be you, is having it all your agenda being about yourself. Now he goes on and says, love is not provoked. Provocation is where you are affected by someone else and they bring about a negative reaction in you. The word literally means to be sharpened alongside. 
It's referring to being next to a stone that sharpens a, a sharp edge. And the idea is we can, you know, in our selfishness, we can make other people be very offended and get very upset. And the Bible warns against that. It says, Paul told the Ephesians, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't do things that make your kids mad. But now here in this passage, it's the flip side of that. And he's saying, don't be the kind of person who allows others to provoke you. Every time we get angry, we almost always have a reason. We almost always have someone to blame. Someone else made me mad. They provided provocation in my life, and now look what I've done. I've been out on so many domestic violence police calls where a guy beats up his wife. The guy's a big, you know, 260-pound bruiser. The wife's a little 110-pounder. And the guy slaps her around, pushes her, knocks her around, and then says, yeah, she made me do it. She said this, or she did, or she hit me first. Come on, that little thing hit you? It should tickle. It shouldn't, you know, well, she hit me in the face with a pan. Okay, now we're talking. <laughs> but generally that's, not, generally, that's not the way it works. It's that a person loses control of themselves because of what someone else did. And we all have people in our lives who we are in relationship with who give us an excuse to be provoked. If you have kids, man, kids can provoke you in so many different ways. If you're married, your spouse can provoke you in so many different ways. People who you know, people in the church, people that you work with or go to school with, in every way you're going to see there are some people that just have the ability to provoke you to scrape against you, and to sharpen you. But you know, when you let them do that, you don't have an excuse. You still answer for yourself. If you're loving, you'll find a way to not be so provocable. It's what getting along with others involves. You know, Paul has already been talking about through this 12th chapter about how we're all different. And we've talked about how that can be a challenge. Because we are all different, because we think differently and do things differently, I think you're weird, and you think I'm weird, and that can grate on you. Sometimes people who, when they meet and fall in love, oh, they think those differences are so cute and charming. And then they live with it for a while, and they go, this is not so cute anymore. This isn't so attractive anymore. And, but here's the thing. Am I going to blame somebody else for what I do? If I do that, and if I am the type of person who when somebody does something that bugs me, I lash out, pretty soon I'm not going to have anyone to lash out to. And the sad thing is, and why so often families are ripped apart, or friends break up and lose friendships, or people leave a job or quit a church or whatever, so often it's because you do something that bugs me, and I think, you know what? I would rather be alone than to be with somebody that makes me so mad. And Satan wins a victory because we need to learn how to be connected to each other. And a part of that, if it's going to work, is learning how to defeat provocation, 
Learning how to mellow ourselves out so that other people don't have the ability to make us so upset. If you love, you'll want to defeat that in yourself. You can't control what other people do. Whatever they are, that's what they're going to do. And you can pray for them and you hope they change, but basically the things they do that bug you, they're probably going to keep doing them. The test is for you and for me is, if I want to be in community, if I want to have friends, then how can I get to where that doesn't get me mad? Sometimes it's just accepting people's differences and getting used to it. I've talked before about some of the things that my wife Anne had that really bugged me because they're very different than I am. I, in my whole life, I've never lost my wallet ever. Never really lost keys. I, I know where they're always in my, oh no, there it is. <laughs> they're always in my pocket. But Anne, as soon as we got married, even before we got married, I was like, she would always lose her purse. And I couldn't figure it out because she'd lose her purse and she would know it's in one of about seven or eight different stores. <laughs> and I'm going, oh man, we got to cancel our credit cards and do all this stuff. And after going through trash bins and looking for a purse, I mean, it just really irritates you. And I got upset, and, you know, and she said, look, this doesn't help. My dad's always done this to me, yelled at me and everything. It just doesn't help. I'm sorry. I don't try to lose my purse. And at some point, I just realized, you know, I'm not helping the matter. And I finally just decided, you know what? It's not going to kill me to every once in a while have Ann lose her purse. It's, it's really not. It's not that big of a deal. I love Ann. She is worth losing stuff. And so I finally just, she is. And so I finally just like, hey, whatever, lose your purse, fine. Another thing, another thing that she used to do is leave the garage door open. And I would just go nuts about it because I'm like, man, my tools are in there, my motorcycle's in there. They could get into the house from there and we could lose everything we own. Don't you care? Don't you get it? I know, I just don't think. And people would call me at work and go, hey, I was just driving by your house, your garage door is open. <laughs> okay, I'll go close it. And, and, you know, it really was a source of irritation. I couldn't wait till the end of the day to remind her, you did it again. But it didn't help. She continued to do it. And finally, I just had to decide, someday I'll probably lose everything in my garage. <laughs> Someday I'll come home, and my motorcycle will be gone, and then I'll get provoked. But until that happens, this is Anne. This is the woman I married. This is the woman that I love. I'm not going to let this stand in the middle of our relationship. And so I just accepted it. That's the way she is. And an amazing thing happened. She hardly ever loses her purse anymore. She never, if the garage is left open, it's usually William now. But, <laughs> but, but it wasn't because I made her change or I intimidated her or I reminded her or I helped her. I don't know what happened. You know, God just probably did a work or, you know, she tried a little harder. I don't know. But the thing is, before she ever quit doing it, I had to learn not to let it get to me. Because I just decided, why should my joy be affected 
by what somebody else is doing that they're going to continue to do. They can't help it. They can't control it. Now, there are other things. I, you know, I like to be on time when I'm going places, especially if I'm teaching you know, or doing the wedding or whatever. But for Anne, time is all kind of relative. You know, a time change really affects her very little because she's just not that precise anyway. Her watch is usually off by half an hour. She'll go, I'm not late. What time do you have? And she'll tell me what time she has. It's nothing, nothing even remotely related. It could be, her watch could just be random numbers. But so as a result, I, I would say some of the most quality moments of my life some of the most quality hours of my life are spent sitting in my car with the car idling, looking at my watch and waiting for my wife, saying, this is the last time. From now on, you're just going to drive yourself. And, but I don't. I wait there. And, but now what I've started to do recently, because I didn't like it after she finally gets to the car with a bunch of excuses, and then I'm like screeching out of the alley in order to show her, you know, oh, now I've got to hurry because of you. Now what I do is I sit in the car when I'm waiting for Anne, and I just thank God for her. And I think about how much I love her and how much she's worth waiting for. And it's like, it, so far it hasn't made her more on time, but... <laughs> But I don't get bugged. I don't get as uptight and angry. The bottom line is, for all of us, do you want to let someone else affect your blood pressure? Do you want to let someone else affect your temperament? Do you want to let somebody else make you sin? Well, the ball's in your court. You either decide that you love enough that you're not going to let that happen, and therefore you try to avoid being provoked. Or you can go ahead and have somebody to blame, but ultimately, they don't really even want to be with you because they don't like that feeling of being blamed for things. Now, how do you do it practically? Um, one thing that I think helps is to prepare yourself in advance. If you, if you start noticing that when you get home in the evening that you tend to, your blood starts to boil and you're upset about something... Well, think about what you could do when you come home to make a difference in that. Instead of coming home and going, this place is a mess, if while you're pulling into the driveway you go, if it's a mess, and may, it may very well be, well, I'm going to spend the first five minutes just straightening a few things up. Maybe they'll take a hint. You know, maybe the boys will jump up and help if I do that. And to plan ahead or to say, you know what, I know we're going to be late, it's okay. I'm going to get ready early, and I'm going to be ready, and then you know, I'm going to realize that if I'm late, everybody's going to know it was Anne anyway, and so <laughs> I'm not going to stress about it. But I, you know, to just make those plans for our relationships, when I see a certain person, I know they may say something that irritates me. So how do I get ready for that in love? How do I prepare my heart, my attitude, my behavior as I pray for that person ahead of time, as I think about what they mean to me and how I love them ahead of time so that I can prepare my heart so that it doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy when I go, every time I come home, there's all this. Well, how about me thinking of what I can do to make it less like that? 
anticipating those times of provocation and taking control of our lives, self-control, deciding that I'm not going to let somebody else be the reason for me acting in a way that ultimately I'll be ashamed of. I'm not going to let somebody else light my fuse and take control of who I am. Love does that. Love doesn't do that automatically. I think a lot of times we read these verses and, and you know, I've seen many people when they're before they're married, people say, oh, read 1 Corinthians 13 and put the other person's name in there and then you'll know whether they love you. No, that's, <laughs> that's not true. Put their name in there and you'll find out how honest they are with you. But in reality, no, love does these things intentionally. It doesn't do it naturally. It doesn't happen automatically just because you love. As Christians, we all love. But we have to choose. We have to decide, am I going to act on that love in a way that connects to others in a meaningful way that causes it to be pleasant for them to be on a team with me, cooperating with me, working together for common goals. Now life becomes fulfilling but because I am deliberately acting out consistently with the love that I have inside. And that's what Paul is saying. Live out this love, and here are some of the ways that it doesn't work. It doesn't work by you just being inconsiderate and rude. It doesn't work, as he says, by by having your agenda be just you, yourself. It doesn't work when you're provoked. You can defend yourself all you want. But you're going to be alone doing it if you can't learn to not be so provoked by others. And finally, love thinks no evil. This isn't a great translation. The word, the Greek word for think there is the word logizomai. It was an accounting term that they would use. Often in the, in the New Testament, it's translated as reckon or consider. But it was a word that, was, that they would refer to keeping an account or a log of things, like an inventory list, logging them, and then meditating on them too is the idea. Now, what he's saying here is, if you love, you'll stop keeping lists. You'll quit keeping a collection of all of the past offenses, of how many times this has happened, of how many ways in which this other person has failed relationships and love are built on forgiveness. That's why herein we know love, because God showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's through his act of atonement and forgiveness that we figure out what love is. And the opposite of that is to keep a list of, an account of, a record of everything that this person's doing that's wrong. Now, some people keep an actual list. Sometimes when I do marriage counseling and a couple comes in and they sit on opposite ends of the room and then they each pull out their list, I go, oh boy, this is going to be good. Because when you're keeping a list, it's already too late. Other times I have people that come in that want to complain about me and they pull out their list. You know, and, and seriously, and it's like, Oh, man, you're drained before it starts to have to, you know, here are the charges against you. Hey, the gospel is that the charges against us have been nailed to the cross. 
that there is no list. When Peter asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Like seven times? Because they were taught, you need to turn the other cheek. But you have two cheeks, generally. And after that, anything goes. But Jesus said, seven, Simon, (laughs) that's not enough. How about seven, seven times 70? So 490 times. Now that's a problem. Why? Because when you get up to 12 or 13 times that you've forgiven someone, it's really hard to keep track. You run out of fingers, you run out of toes, and you're going, ah. The point that Jesus was making was, when you start going, oh man, I'm up to 430. I'm getting there. Pretty soon I'm going to... You haven't forgiven. Love, if it wants to have a relationship, will tear up the list. We'll stop. You know, what we do a lot of times is, okay, little things bug us and we know, I don't want to get in a fight with somebody every time they do something that bugs me. So I put it on the list. It's in here. And the next time we have a talk, I'm going to go down the list of everything that I want to say that bugs me about them. It's a recipe for disaster. Love doesn't keep a list of what's wrong. Now, if someone continues to do the same thing and they've been forgiven and there's a pattern there, that in itself becomes an issue. That in itself is something that we need to address. I'm not saying that you're just crazy and you forget everything, but what I'm saying is love checks off the list and goes, I forgave them. I'm not going to bring that up again. God sees our sins as far as the east is from the west. He sees them at the bottom of the sea. When you're making a list and checking it twice, you're already setting yourself up for division from others. You're already acting in a way that's inconsistent with what love is really all about. And so Paul says, love is the most important thing. And here are some warning signs that you're not acting out your love. First of all, are you being rude? Are you just inconsiderate and sloppy? Are you just doing things and without any regard for how it affects others? Hey, that's one way to drive people away from you. Are you having your own personal agenda that's more about you than it is about anyone else? Again, another thing that just pushes people away from you and defeats love. Are you someone who's provoked? Are you someone who's always affected by what other people do? Or do you have that fruit of the Spirit that's self-control, whereby you can sit there and take abuse, and it doesn't rattle you, it doesn't shake you up, it doesn't force you into doing what you don't want to do. You can still function in love. And then ultimately, again, making a list, keeping track, keeping an account keeping score, you may be right. And, you know, a lot of times I talk to people and I go, they're having an argument and I go, you know, you're right, but you're also going to be alone. You're right, but in winning an argument, you're going to lose a war because you're driving people away from you. You can be so right that you drive people nuts. What it's about is love. 
Again, you can have all knowledge and all wisdom and so much faith that you can move mountains. But you're nothing without love. If that love isn't communicated, if it doesn't flow, the other stuff doesn't matter. Even if you're giving your body to be burned, it doesn't matter. If you're being rude, if you're being selfish, if you're living your life in a way that just is affected so much emotionally by others and you excuse your behavior by blaming someone else for it, and if you're keeping track, if you're keeping count, if you're keeping score, it doesn't matter how loving you are, even. If it doesn't show, it doesn't matter. And this is a choice. Love isn't a choice in one respect. God gives us love. We have it. We love each other. I've never yet met a Christian that I didn't think was loving. But I do meet plenty of Christians who don't come across that way. And that's the choice. Are you going to let God's love flow through you? Are you going to forgive? Are you going to consider others? Are you going to act in a way that causes people to be drawn to you? Are you going to act in a way that causes people to be pushed away from you? Ultimately, our satisfaction in life comes ultimately as we can share life with each other with Jesus Christ at the center. He's designed us that way. That's the way it's supposed to work. But we choose, is this the way I want to live? Or instead, do I want to ignore what he's saying? And God loves me and I'm going to heaven and I really care about the world and everything, but most of the time I'm just alone. Now, you can be alone for periods of time and it can be none of your own fault. If you ignore this verse, it's a great recipe for divorce if you're married. Just go ahead and don't pay any attention to this. You'll end up being alone, maybe feeling that you're right biblically, but you'll still be alone. But there are other people who end up being alone and it's not their fault at all. They were loving, they were doing it that way. They just happen to be married to somebody who's such a creep that you know, you're deserted. And sometimes you'll go through times of your life when you're not doing anything wrong, but it just feels like, where is everybody? But whichever the case is, the remedy is still the same. Focus our attention on demonstrating love, and God will bring people into our lives, and God will cause the people who are in our lives to want to be closer to us. That ultimately will help us to feel like we're a part of something, and we're blessed. However you got where you are today, don't, don't sit here and go, oh man, now I figured out four reasons why I'm so miserable, why my life stinks, why no one likes me. Okay, fine. If you really see that, okay, now deal with it. And what are you going to do today to make that different? What are you going to do today that's going to line your life up with connectedness rather than with isolation? It's a choice that we all make on a daily basis, maybe even sometimes on a moment-by-moment basis. Do I want to annoy people and drive them away? Or do I want to act like Jesus and have people drawn to me like a magnet? Sometimes being alone sounds good. But ultimately, that's not what will be rewarding for us. That's not what will be satisfying. At the end of a lonely life is a perspective that says, I did this for nothing. 
I don't want to live for nothing. And, and you shouldn't either. And it's not necessary. If we do what he suggests here as being, here's how love acts, then life's going to get a lot better. Things are going to improve. People are looking for others who are living this way. And they'll find you. They'll get around to you. You'll have plenty of friends. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for being the example to us, showing us by going first, loving us when we were full of sin, forgiving us unconditionally. Lord, you showed us the way. Help us to learn these lessons of love, these lessons of maturity. Help us to stop shooting ourselves in the foot with people by just being rude or selfish by being angry, or just by being the kind of people who don't connect in a forgiving way with others, getting bitter. Lord, we have no excuse because you have treated us with unbridled, unconditional love. Help us to learn that lesson, to live life the way you've designed it to live, to fulfill our role on the schematic of life, to be who you've called us to be. And Lord, as we do that, reinforce it by bringing people into our lives who we can connect with, by giving us close friends, making us closer with our loved ones and our families. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.